Hi, you're listening to Andrew Farris on NXS Access All Areas with Hayden and B. Check it out. This is In Excess Access All Areas, the podcast that is helping to get In Excess into the Rock Hall of Fame. But we need your help. We need you to share and send the love out. We need to create momentum and make some noise together and get In Excess nominated into the Rock Hall of Fame where they deserve to be. We have a fabulous patron program with lots of rewards, starting from as little as $5 all the way up to $30. Starting with the bronze, you will get a mention each week elevating to a silver you will be able to enter the competition gold will give you further invites into our zoom chats which are awesome or you could become one of our amazing platinum members and get early uploads and a lot more and if you can email in excess aaagmail.com your address we will send you out a welcome pack thank you enjoy Welcome to NXS Access All Areas, the podcast that aims to dive deep into the legacy of NXS, get them in the Rock Hall of Fame, and uh, I guess educate uh, all our listeners, B, uh, and all those ones who are just new to the podcast, just how great this band is. How are you? I'm good, mate. I really am really good. It's good to see you. You look really nice there. It's nice and sunny for a change. I had a shower. I washed my hair. Uh, <laughs> worked a 97 hour week uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm faking it at the moment with some caffeine but um, mm, uh, mm. this podcast, so you, <laughs> this podcast told, is the mail it must get through <laughs> you told me you're getting an assistant is that right this is the goal this is the plan we interviewed oh. this week but um, oh, fingers crossed yeah absolutely um, maybe John Farris is a bit quiet at the moment uh, we haven't heard much from him he might come down and help me out at work Huh? I reckon, yeah, he'd be really good he could, at that. He could play some, <laughs> some drum rhythms there just to sort of, you know, keep, keep the tempo and the mood going at the office. Yeah, kick the teacup. Ding, 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 ding. Imagine coming in every day to Don't Change and the big 4-4, four, four, you know, thump, thump on the floor. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I love your imagination. <laughs> All right. Well, I, you know, it feels like we, uh, I mean, with last week's episode uh, being a little bit more of a poignant one where... You know, we uh, heard from the listeners with our sort of Access All Areas, Calling mm. All Nations get-together. Um, I feel like I need to ask you, how has your In Excess fortnight been? Yeah, yeah, it's been big. Um, I, I, I did want to mention a few things regarding um, last week. Yep. Mainly, uh, did you see the post that Helena put up? Uh, the pictures she put up? or Yeah, and how she came across the photograph. Well, maybe share with that because, uh, well, we are diving into news territory, but we shall go with you because you know a bit more about this than me. Tell me. Uh, yeah, a little bit. So Helena was just looking through some of her old Polaroids and it was on the day that um, Michael passed away, um, which was last Sunday, and she came across a beautiful Polaroid of her and Michael. And she's written something really nice about 
them saying that, you know, there was a bit of an age gap and that she didn't, you know, she felt that she couldn't keep up with that because he'd had so much, um, been in the industry so long and stuff. And it was just, it was really nice. It was really heartfelt. It was a lovely thing that she wrote there. It really yeah. was. Hmm. Awesome. Well, the pics were great. And I guess, um, um, you know, the feedback, I guess, from having a forum last week from uh, some of our, our listeners and patrons and uh, fan engagers has been, been awesome. Uh, I think we had a lot of downloads and more importantly provided a forum for people to sort of share in that annual sort of um, remembering session, I guess. Yeah. And Chuck as well. Chuck actually posted something onto our Facebook page from the, um, the fan club Um it was a photograph of them all signed with Michael, like looking into the camera. Yeah. And um, it was the uh, the year that Michael passed away. So that was lovely. Thank you, Chuck, for that. That was really quite nice of you to put that on. That's one of the, the better names going around, Chuck Feldman. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a good man. Absolutely. Chuck. Chuck. All right. Well, this is probably part of the, uh, the episode B where we welcome our patrons aboard and those who uh, help really fund this podcast and people who also engage and keep the, I guess, the juggernaut, which is getting this band into the Rock Hall of Fame alive. Uh, do we want to call out our patrons, B? Okay. Here we go. I'd like to say hello to everybody outside on the highway. Let's all say hello to everybody outside. It's about 10,000 people at least. Hello. All right, big hello to Pedro, Lisa Urban, Lisa Mack, Lisa Calloway. Uh, we got Foxy, Felicia, Sarah, Laurie, Carmen, Sudi, Dean, Joe Robbins, Mandy, Linda, Anne-Marie, Danielle, and we have Ali Law, we have Kathy, Carrie-Anne, Virginia, Vern, Caroline, David Gaunt, and Amanda. And also today I've met a few guys um, over the week um, that are very interested in the podcast. I just want to mention Adam from um, Coffs Harbour Skydiving. A little bit interesting, this guy. We got talking and um, he was asking about the band. He says, are they still playing? And I says, oh, they can't because of Tim and his finger. And then I says, look, I cut my finger. And he goes, yeah, I cut my finger. And then he showed me his other hand and he hadn't even got a finger on that hand. And I was like, oh my God, we're in the... We're in the club. <laughs> Come on, Timmy. Come on, Timmy. Yeah, get your finger sorted, mate. Yeah. All right. And then the other I one was Scott. Um, I met a guy called... Oh, shit. Overrated. <laughs> That's why you have 10, eh? That's right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and there was Scott. Um, Scott is from um, Coffs Harbour now, but he actually was um, touring a lot with um, In Excess as well, down at the Skiff Club in um, Manly. So a big shout out to him. Yep. And then I met a guy called Fuzzy, which is um, Tim's um, nickname as well. And he's an audio tech guy. I just want to say hi to you. Please get back in touch because I really could do with some help. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, look, sometimes in the, our intro each week, we like to give a bit of a hint about some of the episodes and, you know, last week and this week, et cetera. And now, you know, we've, you know, going on a bit of a narrative about the band and their career. And uh, I know today when we hit our major topic, we're going to talk about in excess in the USAB. So mm. uh, probably a very important market for the band. Uh, so we're going to really dive deep on that today. And in future sort of episodes as well, we're going to talk about in excess in the UK, in excess in Asia, maybe in excess in Australia. Um, we will devote sort of a, a topic to 
you know, what it was in those regions that made the band, you know, big and significant and, 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 and essentially conquer the globe, which, you know, not a lot of bands do that. They might conquer a market, whether it's the European market, whether it's the North American market, but in excess really, you know, continent by continent, you know, conquered uh, those, you know, well, everywhere but Antarctica, I think. Nearly. <laughs> uh, they probably did three tours down there in the new early 80s when uh, things were tougher. <laughs> than the so, Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it surprised me. Um, but, yeah, so we're going to really dive deep into the USA stuff on this particular one. I think the next one in a few weeks' time will be the UK, uh, which, you know, itself, you know, has, you know, probably some different albums and some different songs that charted there. And, yeah, looking forward to just sharing with our, our listeners uh, what NXS meant to the, the respective regions they're in. What time is it, B? It's time for the news. Hi, it's Carmen here from Wollongong, Australia. You're listening to the world's best NXS podcast, NXS Access All Areas, and now it's time for the news. All right, well, B, I feel like uh, I've got uh, a war and peace list of news to uh, share with you and the listeners out there because we didn't do a news last week. So uh, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to. I'll make it up, aren't I? <laughs> no, because we kept bantering with each other throughout the week. Okay, have you seen this? And then yeah, you go, I yeah, know. adding it, adding it, adding. There's lots <laughs> going on in the NXS world, so uh, we will just rip through the first part, which is the charts in Australia. Nothing okay. significant to add. It's still in the top 50 for about the 9,000th week, but uh, has slipped a little bit from 41 to 45. I've been keeping a little sneaky peek on the uh, What You Need uh, Virgin Airlines ad promo here in Australia. Yeah. Haven't seen What You Need chart yet, but uh, it is a cool ad. Have you seen that ad? Yeah, yeah. It's a really fun ad. Yeah, yeah I really like it. Absolutely. Uh, brings all the key elements of What You Need to a sort of a uh, syncopated dance beat girl jumping around in a, in a virgin uh, um, transit lounge there. So uh, if you haven't seen it, Google it. It's a lot of fun. Mm. Um, all right. A couple of articles for listeners who, you know, like to dive deep, et cetera, there on some sort of uh, bigger pieces. There's a good Richard Lowenstein uh, article in NME, um, New Musical Express, which is a UK publication. Um, and it's a really big, deep dive into nearly everything he's done in his career. Uh, not just the stuff with uh, In Excess or Michael, but all the other particular documentaries and uh, films and productions he's been involved with. And, you know, I urge you, everybody there, I think it's uh, it got released on November 26, but it is a great, great uh, sort of uh, homage to Richard's career. Um, and it does go into lots and lots of stuff about In Excess and Michael, especially the Mystify documentary. Oh, right. I haven't seen that, so, yeah. No, it just came out the last couple of days, I think, online. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. if you haven't seen it, guys, uh, you know, Google search accordingly and you'll find it. Um, also, too, there is a sort of a, a music sort of publication that I've mentioned a few times before called Mixed Down, which I think is a, an Australian online publication. Uh, there's a great article on Mark Opitz there. Um, it does get into a little bit of music speak about, you know, different sort of digital sort of technologies and keyboards and guitars and things, which probably went over my head. However, uh, Mark, uh, it's a good sort of uh, update about Mark's career as well, who also did stuff for the Angels, ACDC, Hoodoo Gurus, uh, along with In Excess. And, you know, if you don't know Mark particularly well, he's the guy that created Don't Change and... I think also the awesome uh, editing on, if you think back to uh, Shabu Shabar, Welcome, and Full Moon Dirty Hearts, just a little subtle thing when you listen to them next time. You'll see how the track listing 
uh, is something that Mark was very heavily involved with, you know, what order the songs went in, but also the brief uh, interludes between one song to the other. If you listen to all of those three albums, you will notice sometimes they'll go from song one to two quite fast or um, they'll exit one and, and intro into another. It's a sort of a subtle thing that Mark does in a lot of his recordings, but um, it's definitely very evident on uh, Welcome uh, album and especially on the Shabu Shabar album as well. So um, when we do talk to Mark eventually, uh, I know uh, he will probably go through a little bit more about that. I think he ultimately was outvoted on the full moon uh, sequencing of the songs there, which he was a bit frustrated with uh, because he felt like he, uh, a record company didn't allow him to exercise that production technique. So, mm. yeah, a little subtle thing for the musos out there. Um, also, I guess, you know, we touched a little, bit, a little bit about Helena and her articles, but I guess, as you probably noticed, B, there was a slew of sort of tribute uh, articles all around the world. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's too many to sort of mention here, but if you sort of put in Michael and the dates the other day, you will get some great... Um, Tributes. Yeah, tribute pages from different people and different mm. people that knew him out there. Touch me and I will follow Also for uh, fans of In Excess out there uh, in Melbourne, In Excessive are playing December 4th, which is next Friday night in a week's time. Uh, so I do believe, B, we found out the other week there are two In Excessives. Oh, yes, <laughs> we did. There's like one that's more Sydney-based, one's Melbourne-based. Um, oh. But uh, they are going to be playing in St Kilda. And I know there are a lot of people who are going to that. Um, and for Victorians who... Essentially, uh, today, B, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, we actually eliminated coronavirus today. I heard that. Congratulations. Does that mean you're going to St Kilda? Well, I'm not going to do it. Go, kids. just go. Kids that night, maybe they'll come along and j- jive around it. <laughs> but, uh, but look, the reality is, yeah, we essentially have had 112 days of lockdown, Oof. but we've had 28 in a row with no cases um, all the cases eliminated and no deaths. So um, we've sort of hit a benchmark that probably the rest of the world, unfortunately, going the other way. Um, but we have been in that um, other way for a long time down here. So it almost feels like since we started our podcast series, we're in lockdown, <laughs> B. We I, I shall continue, even though we're allowed to leave our homes now, B. I won't leave you. I was going to say, do you want, you're going to go out now. You're going to leave me. <laughs> no, no. Look, I would never cheat on this podcast with anyone else, okay? You better not. Yeah. Um, now, a couple of little things. I, I found this quite hilarious, B. Uh, do you know on eBay at the moment? A little bit of news for the uh, collectors oh, out there. I think I might have seen this. There go on. A, there is an in excess colouring book. Oh, no, I didn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> it came across my desk and uh, it's at the moment going for $13.45. I've taken a picture. We'll upload it. Oh uh, if you God. like colouring in the body parts of In Excess, <laughs> I would say with their clothes on, I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people out there. And, uh, all you need is black and red. <laughs> guys, because as, as Jerry said, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, 
the I might enjoy that. Can I? You're going to get one for Christmas. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe we'll take it out of the kitty. Uh, but uh, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Eh? It's called an adult coloring in book. So oh, so I, I, gets I, I, even I, better. So maybe there are some interesting as we open the pages. I haven't. <laughs> You've got to get one. Well, I know El- Elton John's ordered four copies, but anyway. <laughs> There's anything wrong with that? Okay. Nothing. Um, And my little thing that I found on uh, eBay was um, a stub ticket for the NXS concert uh, for Birmingham. Woohoo! You found it? I found it. Is that the one you went to? Yeah, but I don't know if I want to pay $700 for it. I must admit for a piece of paper. No. If I just have the memory, thank you very much, and the money in my pocket. Now, B, we're, we're about to introduce a, a sub-news section. We are. And now it's time for the bittersweet symphony of the In Excess Media Wars. All right, B, we've got a new little jingle there for Media Wars. We thought it deserved its own intro, sub-news <laughs> as well. Boy, it's been on for young and old. With last week, it was a quiet thing. Everyone had retreated 20 paces. Uh, it's the OK Corral. Uh, <laughs> we knew it was going to be big this well, week, didn't we? You can't, you can't keep a good man down like Kirk. Kirk, uh, I, I, I don't quite know where it was, but it was a, some – Lane's got a new business, which is sort of self-development and – all these particular things. She's all over social media with her business. Mm-hmm. But there was some little publication came out this week and who happened to pop up in the little news segment on her uh, platform? Kirk. Tea, tea with Kirk. Cup of yeah. tea with Kirk. What was it? Can you elaborate? Because I, I, I laugh so I, only... I can read it, but can you tell us how Kirk popped oh, up? We shouldn't laugh because it, it just looks pretty serious book because it's quite funny in the media wars. It was a cup of tea with Kirk. It was on e- Instagram. It was at right. 8.30 in the morning. I was like, I can't do that. I can't do that. We all log in and have a cup of tea with Kirk. Yeah, and he had a little chat with you. Okay. Kirk has to get double points just for sheer audacity. That's all right. fun, uh, yeah. The next one uh, there, we uh, had the ARI Awards this particular Ooh. week. Because- our version of the Grammys, uh, or if you're from Canada, I think it's the Juno Awards, and if you're from England, it's the British Music Awards. But um, often in excess get asked to come on and, and uh, uh, I guess, uh, present awards and things. And this year they were there presenting our Best Group uh, Award for Tame Impala. Yeah. Pretty significant band in Australia who also just got three, two or three Grammy nominations. But um, uh, and, and can what- I... Can I add a little bit to that? Yeah. So Tame Impala, the bass player, used to be Nick Albrook, who is going out with... Tiger? Tiger. Ah. Ah. Get that. Okay. There you go. Small world. Okay. Small world. Mm. Well, you know, when uh, this uh, Delta Goodwin was hosting the awards and they said, okay, coming out to, uh, uh, I guess, acknowledge for the best group uh, nominations and hand over the award is Tim from NXS. Who's, who's popped out with him? Kirk! <laughs> with his tea. No, he didn't have tea. Oh, no, not with his tea. <laughs> Kirk has doubled up. He knew Tim was coming and he didn't want to be uh, one all. He's gone two one up. So no. Kirk's popped out in media wars at uh, the ARI Awards. Um, yeah, and his little spotty jacket. Very cute, Kirk. Correct, like correct. that. 
Um, and look, there has been, I, I had a little bit of look online. I couldn't find much for Gary this week. This must have been very quiet this week, Gary. Mm-hmm. And we know John is the quiet one. Um, and, and look, on a more heartfelt one, Andrew did pop out this week to compete. But it was yes. with a sense of resonance. He did actually go online, I think, through the publication uh, site Noise, uh, what are they called? Noise11.com, I think. Uh, and he did put out uh, a really, really nice version uh, of My Brother. Which yes. Was a song penned with John Stevens, uh, I guess, back in the early 2000s. Um, and that was... You know, it was Media Wars, but with some resonance there. So, yes, it was, yes. Yeah, that was particularly good. So, um, yeah, can't wait till next week. There's a lot, these, these are Media Awards. Are, uh, How many weeks we got to Christmas? I just feel there's something really going to come up for Christmas. Come more, on, John. Give us a present. Four weeks to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, this is Tim Farris, and you're listening to Access All Areas with Hayden and B. Hey. This is Danielle from Pensacola, Florida, and now Topic of the Week. Well, in excess in the USA, uh, this is going to be a fun topic today. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. Now, there's a lot of people out there looking forward to this. They've gone yeah. off on this one, haven't they? Absolutely. Very eager Absolutely. to hear it. Well, look, it'd be nice to sort of uh, relate, you know, the, the international band that in excess were to the various sort of markets they, they, they were in. And as alluded to earlier, um, they had an impact in the UK. Um, they've had an impact, obviously, in Australia, through Asia, through uh, South Africa, Africa, you know, et cetera, through South America, massively in Brazil uh, and places like that. So, um, and, you know, different songs, different albums, different tours, different scenarios, different, um, you know, tunes that resonate maybe later. I mean, if you're an Australian person growing up, everything up until probably, you know, the completion of the swing still gets heavy, heavy rotation here. You know, everything from Shibu Shima to you know, Underneath the Colours through to the swing itself. Um, is massive. Like <clears throat> in Australia, essentially, they had a career before they even went to America nearly, you know. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting just to be able to, you know, isolate, you know, the conversation to the American side today because we have a lot of loyal listeners there and there's a lot of loyal fans there. Yeah. I mean, like, like they didn't even buy, uh, get an award until nine years later in America, <laughs> did they? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, look, just a bit of a backdrop to kick things off. Um, you know, being Australian and being a young band here, 
Um, and even if you think back to sort of like, you know, acting terms or business or whatever there, America is, you know, known as a land of opportunity. It's a, it's a very aspirational uh, epicenter of the world. And uh, as they say, like in New York, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Well, you know, America probably represents the, the Mount Everest of targets for, for, for uh, artists in any sort of uh, repertoire coming through. And the only difference sometimes between actually going about doing it you know, um, and achieving there is actually the ambition to do it and then secondly, putting in the hard work. And I think those sort of two attributes summed up in excess very early, B. Yeah, well, it's such a huge country, isn't it, to navigate as well. Yeah, so, you know, being an aspirational type of goal, the band, um, I just went back and did a bit of research, you know, they obviously went back into, uh, well, went into America in uh, early 80, early 83, I think, the end of 82. But uh, I know Chris Murphy, when he did take the reins of being the manager of the band, uh, was very, very keen for them to be not just an Australian band, uh, but being an international sounding band, but also be prepared to take it to a bigger market. Mm. Now, Chris was an ambitious guy. He'd seen other bands in Australia like Cold Chisel and the Angels and various other bands at that time, you know, maybe get to a point where they weren't prepared to go overseas and aggressively put the hard yards in. Or if they did, uh, they were doing it at a later age when the energy levels were really low. And uh, looking back at when In Excess did go to America, you know, the end of 82, early 83, you know, we had, uh, I think the average age of the band, sort of the range was between 20 with John up to about 23, 24 with, you know, Gary. So we were still very young um, and had a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And uh, they sort of, you know, smartly got over there and started doing the touring sort of circuits and things like that. Um, I know uh, in terms of being prepared to do that, they, you know, effectively going from bigger venues in Australia to very small venues, but they did get that chance. And I think a lot of you have probably sort of seen it where uh, they went to that big US festival in San Bernardino where they were one of the, uh, the acts uh and uh, i think they played in front of like 180,000 people yeah uh, and yeah. that's the one with the big rainbow above, above them yeah i think so but oh it's gorgeous yeah so they got a chance to get onto that particular um uh, slot and that was being all over mm. mtv and um mm. they really you know earned the right to, to get on that through doing a, a lot of hardcore touring around and, and in the footage that it, it looks like the crowd are absolutely loving them as yeah. well and I found some uh, footage here, 1983, Four Corners, which was like a little new show in um, Australia, followed the band around uh, America. Um, have a little listen to this. This is so much fun. Listen. On the eve of their second American tour this year, the Sydney band In Excess shook off their jet lag after the long flight from Australia. If it is energy which sets apart the Australians from corporate cash register music, the players and their crew will need every ounce to survive the insane pace of the American rock business. The schedule for In Excess begins like this. A five-hour drive north to Fresno, California. Promote, perform, then drive back arriving in LA at six in the morning before another performance and another across America. There he is. 
106 KKDJ Fresno is the station in the studio with me at this very minute. A couple guys from In Excess, Mike and Tim. Okay, what do you say we play a song from the LP? Shabu Shaba, which is your fourth, right? Yeah. Only number one in America. We were just talking about the The welcoming news at the Hacienda is that In Excess have sold out the 1,500-seat room in a part of America said to be listening to different music. Um, I guess, you know, relating it back earlier, you know, they wanted to, and I think Nick Egan touched upon this the other week, is that they didn't want to be what we call a cultural cringe. We didn't want to go over there, um, you know, like some bands and be sort of idiosyncratically Australian. They wanted to have an international sound. Um, you know, they wanted to almost be, you know, surprised or have interviews surprised uh, that they were Australian. Not that they weren't proud of it, but... Um, Unfortunately, back in that time, sometimes even Australia, Australia as a country wasn't seen as a sophisticated place. It wasn't a very well-known place. We didn't have, uh, you know, internet and certain broader-based information going around. So um, a lot of people's association in America with Australia at that time literally was, you know, kangaroos and the yeah. city of garbage. Mm, um, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I and, did. Yeah, and, and you could probably talk about that personally being uh, coming out to Australia in the 80s, I guess, yourself. Mm. Mm. I didn't come out in the 80s. I came out in the 2000s, but that's oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, but, from, for, but being in the 80s in England and seeing Australia, it was like a faraway fairy tale land of yeah, like yeah. hotness. Yeah. Hot. Heat. <laughs> a lot of heat. <laughs> yeah. but, but it was. I mean, there was just, you know, the cliche snaps and things like that. Just, mm. just like probably from, from our perspective, you know, America was Disneyland and, mm. um, and uh, you know, that, as a kid, that was our sort of association. So, so I guess going over there, they, they were proud of their Australian roots, but they didn't want to be defined by them. They wanted to sort of be defined by their success and, uh, and their music and their talent and, um, and their sound and, and be recognised for that. Um, mm. So I guess that was, you know, particularly interesting. Um, I guess, you know, not long after that, you know, they were able to get a chance to go in and record in America. And, you know, going back through some of the, the facts and figures, um, it's really interesting that given all the success they had over there, they only actually really recorded, from my understanding, one song in the whole career in America, which was Original Sin. And, no. Yeah, really? Yeah, we've spoken about that a lot on the podcast and things. Um, but essentially, if you look back at the albums, you know, uh, uh, they had the recording studio, which was Rhinoceros, where they did sort of uh, Listen Like These and, and sort of Kick and X in Australia. They did Elegantly Wasted in Canada uh, with Bruce What about Please? Huh? What about Please with <laughs> well, Ray they, Charles? Yeah, well, they, they I think they uh, might have had co- got... Ray when he was in Paris, I think, etc. Oh, okay. um, yeah, I think they were doing that one in Paris, or whatever. But in terms of fully fledged albums and doing a whole bunch of tracks and things, you know, really, I think is just you know, original sin in New York at the Power Station Studios is a, mm. probably the one rare time that they sort of recorded there. Um, so yeah, from that sort of point of view, it's just interesting that given, as I said, you know, their their um, uh, global ascent that they didn't get a chance to record there as much. Not to say that they would have been better to record there, but it's just an interesting quirk there within the mix. I mean, they've, they've recorded some things in New Zealand and they've sort of recorded some things in, you know, uh, I said Canada, uh, you know, they've done some, you know, little backing tracks and things in Hong Kong or whatever, but most of the albums that got made were generally made in Australia uh, throughout mm. their career. Um, and I guess when you have that recording studio that they owned, it made sense to be like yeah. that. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, from a fangirl's perspective, um, from the uh, the Americans, the the American girls more so, they 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 were very different to a lot of bands who were out there with their swagger, but they were innocent. They weren't like buff and old and they and or or like you know like um, Adam Ant coming out with some sort of like hideous sort of makeover. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were real. They were touchable. They were likable. They were fun, and yeah. I think that's what the, the the fans loved about them and still do. You know that they're just. <laughs> um, they're real guys and humble with it, but fun. Well, if you think back to that particular era, you know, 1982, 83 was really in the sweet spot of that sort of new romantic movement. Mm. Um, let's let's look at the contemporaries at the time. Yeah. You know, even between nine and say 80, 1980 and 83, I mean, you had, you know, bands sort of like Culture Club, you know, breaking out. You had sort of Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, um, Ultravox. Yeah. Um, uh, and a lot of those, you know, from the UK side in America, you probably had the back end of some really 70s, early 80s stuff like sort of Foreigner, um, Sticks. Yeah. Um, you had uh, some of the metal stuff, you know, that was sort of going around at the time. Uh, and it was just on the sort of the, 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 the edge of some of the sort of the glammy sort of sort of LA uh, rock thing that was starting to come down. Um, and the police were still going around. As they were well, just about they? to finish. They, yeah. they were really on the back end. They, on the back end, yeah. Synchronicity did come out, but they were on their last album tour. And, um, but yeah, it was that. And MTV obviously was breaking, which you know we'll talk yeah. about soon. Um, and and videos was something that I guess for in excess uh, favorability being in Australia and they were like advertorials to get your music out, you know, to Australians and to people overseas. Yeah. And they had loads. Yeah. (laughs) They'd been doing it quite repeatedly and, uh, and cultivating an image and a, and a, and a brand situation Mm. uh, and an awareness. Um, And obviously MTV stuff at that time, they were quite short on content, but in excess had the one thing video that I guess, you know, really resonated with, um, uh, MTV and, and having a lack of material, they got a lot of play with that. And that song went top 30 uh, in America, uh, went, hit number 30, and the album ultimately is charted and, and did very successfully there and uh, then led into some other singles being released there, which we'll talk about a bit later. Mm-hmm. But um, they got off to that really good start, which was, which was, was pretty important. Um, so, so yeah. Actually, I, there's a little quote here from Murphy when he was looking into it and getting ready for it, and he says that um, none of the uh, the US press even realised that In Excess were even Australian until about the third or third or fourth tour. In fact, probably, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, again, there was that androgynous type thing going on, and these were mm. these sort of six sort of you know manly, hard you know hard at it, you know, good looking, but could play guys who were able to get up on stage at San Bernardino and just rip it. Yeah. Um, and remember, they'd done probably a thousand gigs by that point. I mean, there were yeah. probably bands they were competing with on some of those bills had probably barely played 50 times. Yeah. It sort of honed their skills, you know. Yeah. Back in those days without, you know, the advent of the internet, but early MTV only, which was still very, very sort of, you know, sophomoric in its, in its, um, in its, in its uh, you know, scope. Um, the reality was they could play live. It was such a great advertisement for the band. And mm. culturally at that time, uh, especially, people saw live music. People wanted yeah. to go see live music. Bands mm. were the thing. And if you could play live, you know, you built a groundswell of, of a following. And I think that was, you know, really, I guess, to sort of, I guess, you know, uh, round out this sort of intro, that was sort of the time and the era that they were a part of um, and they were able to sort of nail. 
Yeah. And so we don't often need them back now, don't we? We're all yeah. gagging for some live music now. Yeah, that's right. It's to look at you. who I guess who listen to our podcast are from different eras. I'm just going to sort of break down the way I, I've looked at InXS's career in America over their sort of journey. And uh, the first probably part of the year was that sort of 1983 to 1986 era. And I call that the ascent, you know, the climb, the, the, the beginnings, humble beginnings to some traction there. So we're going to talk a little bit in a moment about that 1983 to 1986. Um, I'm then going to talk about the 1987 to 1991 era, which is I, I call the apex. That was the sort of the pinnacle years where, mm-hmm. you know, they were front and centre and everywhere. Uh, and we'll break that down a little bit. Uh, we're then going to talk about 1992 to 1997, which is probably sort of the musical reinvention, but probably unfortunately the sort of the descent in popularity. Um, not so much in quality, of course, but just, you know, movements change and people's yeah. tastes, you know, veered and, uh, unfortunately, they got caught up in, in that sort of, uh, you know, uh, descent a little bit. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the sort of the 2005, 2006, what I call the sort of the reincarnation uh, sort of period there uh, and touch upon that because there was some, definitely some US, you know, significance uh, sort of during sort of that particular particular time. Now, um, if we break it down to the first one, which is 1983 to 1986, well, let's just look at some of the music that sort of came out during that particular time. So we had, uh, in America itself, we had Shabu Shabar sort of break into the charts. You know, we had the tours, like we mentioned, uh, through San Bernardino, the big club tours, you know, the big gigs and things, and they were getting that movement. Um, We then had the situation where the swing got released. Now, the swing probably in Australia, may just edge kick in terms of overall love. When NXS released uh, The Swing in Australia in 1984, uh, a year and a half after Shabu Shabar, um, I mean, it, it blew up here. It's their most successful album in Australia in terms, maybe not of sales, but singles and just that mm. massive leap of, of, of going from sort of 6 out of 10 known to sort of 11 out of 10 known. So um, the swing, you know, with, I think, Original Sin hitting number one here, Send a Message number two, Burn For You number three, Dancing on the Jetty number, I think, 36. And then they had a whole bunch of album tracks that still get played on the radio these days. Um, that was, was seen as this album that was going to take in excess from the great beginnings, I guess, of Shabu Shabar to really climb, you know, through through America. And, you know, that I think uh, Original Sin hit number one in Argentina and France and was starting to blow up. It had Noel Rogers behind the production buttons and had Daryl Hall and Backup Vocals, who was the biggest sort of duo in the world at the time. Everything was there for the taking. And um, it was strange and, you know, with such success maybe through a little bit of Europe and, and, and some of the South American countries, 
that when Original Sin got released in America, it only hit number 58. Um, And they were touring and they were getting some traction and things like that. But it's it's sort of a a period that um, was a missed opportunity. And it doesn't make any sense, really, because The Swing is such a a great album. And ironically, as we said on a previous podcast, um, a million units of The Swing were sold on the back end of Kick. (laughs) So people went back and discovered it six, seven years later. It went platinum, but it didn't yeah, go yeah. platinum when it was first released. It was one of these sort of hidden treasures where people love kick and went, oh, let me go back and look at the other stuff. And they sold like over a million units of, of the swing after, you know, if you look back when it was accredited platinum, it was accredited platinum in the late 80s, not in the mid 80s when it was released. Now, if you look in the story to story book, okay, you'll notice that there was a gun thrown on stage at one of the concerts in America, out in the Midwest, where the song Original Sin was being played. So I think we've talked about that before, where that song, you know, too racial, too intellectual, um, too sort of, uh, I mean, it was banned on certain stations, um, that uh, it didn't give the album the traction it needed. Okay, so, you know, after the Swing album, they've then gone into Listen Like Thieves. And thankfully, uh, I guess they got the sort of the chart recognition they deserve with what you need in, I think, March 86, uh, hitting top five. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, a friend of the podcast, MM, this morning uh, posted on his Facebook site about this time being the first single uh, and that it was maybe an odd choice to release and it did stiff sort of, I guess, in America. Uh, and then they quickly followed up with what you need. But um, but that breakthrough, I guess, after, you know, the, the sales failure of the swing, I think was such a confidence booster for the band uh, and such a significant uh, achievement for an Australian act to hit top five with what you need. Uh, the video got nominated for MTV awards and things. Uh, it was really that sort of massive uh, tonic that they needed because being top 30 and being top five, Okay, yes, obviously it's 25 the difference, but in terms of airplay, the the uh, people who then go and buy your album because they love that song was mm-hmm. massive. So something like the, you know, the swing that sold a couple of hundred thousand albums was then translated by Listen Like Thieves selling a couple of million albums. Yeah. That album went number like 11 in America. And uh, as a result of that, um, you know, they released some other singles that sort of charted in sort of the, the, the relative sort of uh, back blocks of the top 50. But um, they got that recognition. They started playing Carnegie Hall. They started getting, a, I think, a gig at Madison, uh, 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 Madison um, Gardens. Madison Gardens. I'm having a, I'm having a blonde moment. Uh, 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 and I know that's where Nick Egan went to see them and then met Michael and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, uh, so from that sort of point, you know, it was exciting getting that sort of uh, that album, album into, uh, I think, number 11, selling a couple of million uh, records. Um, I guess, you know, the CD movement was coming. I know that sort of around that early 86 period happened and that helped their sales. Uh, they were getting more traction there. They were appearing on a little more uh, mainstream TV shows and things, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um 
and, and things were starting sort of to move for them there in that sort of 1983 to 86 period, uh, particularly the back end of that sort of uh, period there. Um, it then led to the Lost Boys soundtrack, which I think you know that movie, B, The Lost Boys. Yes, uh, yes. And then they were able to put the, the Good Times song on that, which sort of I think sort of went into early 87, just before kick. Um, but there was just movement there. There was confidence there. And... Um, often Andrew is, is and, and uh, as, as mentioned, he goes, oh, my God, I've just had a top five single. You know, oh, my God, I've got to do it again, you know, rather than go, hey, I've got a top five single. So poor old Andrew, probably the slight pessimist going, I've got to do it all again, you know. Um, uh, but he did it again. So, you know, we've talked about that. But, um, yeah, so that, that got was... a little story about him later, if you can let me talk. Okay, I'll let you talk now. Can I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, when they were traveling across the, the States, which is huge, I've never done it. Have you ever done it? Oh, you did a little bit, didn't you? I've, I haven't traveled across. I've just been to select places, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, can you imagine from one um, city to another, they'd be traveling via the evenings and stuff. So they had to be, um, well, Andrew particularly was very um, hesitant and watched the driver. And um, he decided to go to sleep one night and found out that they actually went straight into a ditch in the middle of the night in the snow so yeah so i said they all they all got out safely but from that day on he made sure he was up at up at the front talking to the driver all (laughs) night to keep them awake yeah poor andrew and and those are good andrew (laughs) well they were on a, a, a plane going out to oh. the out, outback uh, in Coober P doing the, um, yes. uh, which was a uh, Kiss the Dirt film clip. And uh, I guess that was, a, a, I think, something we spoke about with the pilot. Yeah, he had to plane. grab, didn't he have to fly the plane? Oh, something, yeah. I don't think it got to that level, but uh, it was a little bit dicey. I think when the, the pilot looked half asleep, I, I think. I think I've heard Tim on a radio show say that he looked across and there was Andrew holding the... Uh, Holding the controls? Holding the controls, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I think there was something along those lines, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> that man can do anything. So just in this particular era, uh, for the uh, chart watchers out there, you know, we'll just maybe break down so some of the results they did get on the charts at the time. So in that little 983 to sort of 86 period, uh, the one thing, hit number 30 uh, on the sort of major billboard charts, uh, don't change, uh, hit number 80. Uh, and mm. so, you know, again, it's probably uh, a much better song than number 80, as, as evidenced by today, how it still resonates. But they were the sort of the billboard results at the time. Uh, in terms of that particular sort of album there. Uh, I think the album, I hit, hit number 46 from memory, I think. I'm just double-checking. Da, 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 da. Do you um, remember all this stuff? Oh, no, I'm cheating at the moment. I'm just, oh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm well, going back. It doesn't back. look like it. It looks like it's all coming out of your head. <laughs> no, nah, look, it was 46, that's right. So, yes, yeah, so hit 46 on the charts at that particular time. Went gold. So gold in America is like 500,000. 
Um, the swing, obviously, at the time uh, peaked at 52. So, you know, that in itself just sort of shows that there was just a stalling chart-wise there, which mm. is which is, doesn't make sense. I mean, it went five times platinum in Australia. Um, it went platinum in America eventually. But, um, again, it was on the back end of kick and discerning uh, purchases going back later on and, uh, and discovering it, which I'm glad they ultimately sort of did. Mm. Um, in terms of the singles released in America off uh, the Swing album around this sort of period, as I said, you know, uh, Original Sin stalled there at only 58. Uh, I sent a message was released, it hit 77. Uh, and that was really much it from the Swing album. Uh, in t- terms of uh, uh, Listen Like Thieves, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, What You Need charted very high, but, uh, you know, this time was the first single in America and went number 81. Uh, and they quickly got out What You Need, which was a smart play, and they went number five. Uh, Kiss the Dirt didn't chart there, but Listen Like Thieves charted there and hit number 54. So, um, again, you know, not massive results on all the individual singles, but uh, enough for uh, what you need being the eminent one that hits sort of number five to give them that sort of tonic. And I, I guess, you know, that recognition that what they were doing and working towards was was actually going to, um, you know, just sustain them. Like you, that, that I'm sure the revenue that came through sustained the tours, sustained the recording, sustained, you know, the lifestyle, you know, the production costs, all those type of things. So, yeah. Um, well, I- I, I, yeah. I read somewhere that it was mainly um, college radio that um, really got them out and heard. And then they, in, in turn, that would get everyone down to the tours. Um, that well, was yeah, I think the main I, thing because they were, because like you said before, they're not, you can't p- pigeonhole their music, can you? Well, I think you think back to sort of who sets the agenda of what's cool. It is generally mm. sort of high school to college students. And college radio in America has been really handy for bands like In Excess, you know, REM, mm. um, a lot of bands that sort of started off within those sort of places and where they could get the the, the, the younger ones listening, the ones who would buy concert tickets, the ones that, you know, would go out and see them live. Um, and, and everybody likes to be ahead of the curve, don't they, when they're young? We all like to... Yeah. to embrace things that are slightly new and not well known and you want to own your own band and things like that so um yeah i think i I think that even you know echoed in kick when they got the stuff out on college radio pretty early too so um but yeah the actual album listen like thieves peaked at number 11 it sold over 2 million copies um and yeah i guess it was just that that part of that ascent between that 1983 and 86 period where um, there was just that confidence boost there. It was, a, it was just a rec- recognition probably, if you think about it, for nine years of work. You know, they're together in 77. By 86, they just got their first top five hit in America. You know, <clears throat> that's a bit... That's a patient band, that's a hard-working band, and that's a result of uh, ambition, aspiration, equaling talent uh, and perseverance. And good hair. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and good and good hips. And good hips. <laughs>
All right. Well, the apex years, the, the, the years where, you know, they just blew up and they were sort of really the cultural zeitgeist of, of everything that was going on. Um, it sort of probably started, just as I said, with the Lost Boys soundtrack in 87 with um, uh, Good Times coming out. And again, a lot of the, uh, the actors in that movie were sort of cutting edge younger actors who went on to bigger things. And uh, they recorded the two songs for that. Uh, one, obviously, the Good Times song that was probably recorded for Australian, uh, Australian Made, as we said, but they were happy to parlay it into that particular uh, movie. Uh, and then they had a song called Laying Down the Law, also with Jimmy Barnes, that they were happy to sort of record and put into the movie as well. Um, Good Times uh, hit number two in Australia, but I guess in America, uh, hit 47. But uh, again, it was a nice filler song. Um, I think they also had a song called Do What You Do off the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. So between Listen Like Thieves uh, and Pretty like uh, Pretty in Pink, sorry, <laughs> between Listen Like Thieves and Kick, they had the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. They had obviously the Good uh, the uh, Lost Boy soundtrack and also a little movie out of Australia, B, called Crocodile Dundee. Dundee. <laughs> Uh, they, they had a song that's still my, my worst song of theirs called Different World. Uh, that's for another podcast. Um, and that was a song off the uh, Crocodile Dundee uh, soundtrack that went sort of uh, uh, bonkers in America as well. Uh, but look, the, the, the critical part of their, uh, you know, I guess their apex years was the release of Kick. And look, we did a big album review recently. We're not going to sort of do a, a reiteration of that. But look, you know, Kick, you know, hit number uh, three on the charts in America. Uh, it's blown up, I guess, to a sort of level where it's uh, um, sold nearly 20 million copies. It's sold, you know, close to 10 million, I think, in America. Uh, it's actually had a situation where the singles, uh, Need You Tonight, uh, went number one. A very unlikely sounding song to go number one. Uh, and that, you know, as we all know, uh, you know, achieved uh, great success you know, in the MTV Awards. Uh, they had Devil Inside go number two. Uh, I think it was kept out by uh, Billy Ocean. Uh, mm. I might have said Bobby McFerrin recently, but I think it was Billy Ocean. Get out of my dreams, get into my car or something like <laughs> stupid like that. Uh, so Devil Inside was number two. Uh, New Sensation number three. So they've, that, you know, again, the same, same rounding out of tracks like the Swing album in Australia. They've had a one, two and three like they did in Australia with the swing, they've had that in America, okay? Um, and then they've had uh, Never Tear Us Apart hit number seven, uh, rounding out sort of the uh, the four major songs that uh, were released there. Um, so, you know, that's that's exciting, just sort of seeing sort of what occurred, you know, with that situation. Now, um, I think when you look at that particular apex there, um, and I think you've probably read Story to Story, B, uh, they did it a massive amount of touring there, didn't they? Huge amount of touring. Yeah, so it started out with you know the the clubs and the you know the, the the unis and the colleges and all those type of things, and they were coming off the back end of a very little record company support for the album, so they went out and grinded and grafted and things like that, and then they were able to sent into the bigger stadium uh, or the big arenas. They yeah. eventually eventually made into stadiums and sort of did lap upon lap upon lap. I think it was an eighteen month world tour, but they must have done America three or four times around that. Yeah, and a massive following. Like fans which carried on following them all around the world, never mind just around America. They actually got on planes and followed them around. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some great footage, you know, around that particular time, you know, of of interviews with the band and interviews on tour and 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 uh, uh, you know, fan feedback and things like that and they were, you know, ultimately they in 88 were the biggest band in the world at that particular year. You know, they, they, they won the, the MTV Awards, which we'll touch upon in a moment, but they uh, were selling out everything. 
they're outselling you too that year, who probably come off 87 with the Joshua Tree. Um, their singles uh, were getting high recognition. Uh, MTV loved them. Uh, they were just really part of everything. And in fact, they even get a couple of references in a couple of movies of that particular area. Now, I know Pedro will love this little statistic, but there was a great movie called The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Uh, with a guy called Andrew Dice Clay in the first 10 minutes of that movie. Uh, there's a little reference to, uh, uh, hey, in excess, we're on the phone, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they want him to be their security. And he's like, hey, I don't like kangaroos. <laughs> you know? uh, and there was a, a, another movie with Dennis Hopper and Kiefer Sutherland at the time where they go over to a jukebox and then I think Dennis Hopper, you know, says, what is inks? Uh, so, you know, when you start, you know, you know, they're probably only one, one hit single away from being on The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, although The Simpsons hadn't really started. But, you know, like they, they permeated sort of the zeitgeist, you know, they were, they, they just climbed that mountain. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, in Australia, we sort of knew about it, but it wasn't the internet. There was no internet. Um, you know, they came back to Australia and toured successfully and, and we were all very proud of them. But, um, again, you had to be a bit of a connoisseur of music magazines, a connoisseur of MTV late at night to actually find out what was going on. Like, you just couldn't press Google and go, oh, I just want to see Nexus sing Never Tear Us Apart live in Chicago like you can do now. You know, like, th things weren't at your fingertips. So, um, I guess, as I said again, they were that big over there. I, I still don't think even Australia probably recognised just how big they were. <laughs> memory is seeing them I can't even remember what the show was and Michael's all in black leather trousers and a black see-through black top yep. and he's singing away and this girl just jumps out of the audience I mean she's yeah. like somebody that I've always wanted to know and yeah. I've met <laughs> she came and found me on Facebook and she says that is me that's me and uh, she uh, she followed them everywhere she followed them to Europe and everything yeah. so they liked them because they were comedy value these girls yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, her name is Jamie so hi Jamie out there <laughs> she now works in Disneyland for places well I think <laughs> I, I know the one you mean I think that's might be off the X album there where they're playing live in one of the TV shows there but um, the crowd just were getting into it, weren't they? Yeah. They were like, they were breaking the rules. That was real <laughs> rock and roll, wasn't it? It was real rock and roll. It was great. Yeah. It was really good. Like every girl's dreams is to jump up there and get a hug with Michael. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so um, in terms of you know the chart success, that was you know pretty significant. Um, now, in terms of awards, uh, as we've said 
previously. You know, they they scooped the pool at the MTV Music Awards. I think I think it was six awards. Maybe one of them went to Richie, which is a uh, sort of a director or producer's award. But I think there were, overall there were six awards all up. But they uh, they scooped the pool, and, and and at that time in the eighties, MTV was the sort of the it go to sort of critical commercial darling awards, um, I guess, of where, you know, bands took notice. Um, you know, what, as I've said previously, was one of the great injustices, though, was the fact that the old money got one Grammy nomination, which, mm. you know, when you climb the mountain and you're the biggest band in the world and you've both got that unique position of critical acclaim and commercial impact, um, how they got one Grammy award off the kick album is still... You know, like, like to me, it's it's up there with the JFK, uh, you know, assassination. Uh, you know, it really it really needs some sort of warrant commission to go back and look into that one. You know, you know because I can't work I can't work it out. I mean, there are there are Mickey Mouse bands and people with you know you know fake breasts who can't even sing and write their songs are getting five nominations three days ago. Yeah, so we know just, how that happens. It's just it was just you know an absolute uh, crime. Um, so, uh, so yeah, in terms of that particular sort of period in 87, you know, uh, to 91, they got that uh, one Grammy nomination off Kick. Uh, they got a Grammy nomination off X uh, for Suicide Blonde, uh, which probably then sort of links into sort of the X album. You know, they, you know, had, had really from sort of the end of 87 through to early 89, they'd had massive tours, massive impact on the charts, massive uh, sales. Um, you know, they'd literally been gone from sort of Listen Like Thieves into Kick. They really hadn't had much of a break for probably 10 years, but pro- probably for the better part of five. So they all decided to take a year off and they all went off into different projects, which we will talk about next week. But mm-hmm. uh, in, ter- in terms of coming back, uh, they came back with the X album and that came out around sort of uh, September, I think, 1990. Uh, again, the world was watching. Um, they got a chance to play at the MTV Music Awards. I think Michael wearing no shoes and his, his kaleidoscope top B. I could see yeah. you salivating there. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, they were playing that particular uh, well, lead single, uh, uh, Suicide Blonde. Uh, and it was like, welcome back in excess. And I guess as a, as, as a chart response, uh, the, the song went number nine. Uh, the uh, second follow-up song, Disappear, written by John and Michael, uh, went number eight, uh, which was great. Uh, the, the, the film clips of both uh, were cutting edge, etc. They had great dance remixes as going on. Um, I guess with the album uh, X, it went number two in America. So it actually went higher on the charts than what Kick did. Yeah. Um, and they'd really sort of consolidated their position. You know, as I said earlier, their, their tour now was not going via buses anymore, B. They had their own plane with the oh. X Factor tour on it. Um, <laughs> 60 minutes, you know, people can go and download this. They, they'd done sort of a companion piece, like a before and after. So they'd shown them on the bus and the, and the boondocks of America, I guess, in 82, 83. Now they were jet-setting around the world in 91 doing the X Factor tour. Um, and they, they were really sort of, I guess, consolidating their sort of position after the, uh, the uh, Kick album. Um, uh, did it sell as much as Kick? Not quite, um, but it was definitely well received critically. Uh, I know, obviously, without you know, digressing too much, it really took off in Europe, which gave it sort of, a, a, uh, I guess, a pushback in America as well. Um, I guess it sort of started to store a little bit on the singles release. You know, um, one of the things which, you know, uh, they did is they released Bitter Tears as the third song. And I was at the time uh, a little bit angry that they did that because I always thought that was about the seventh or eighth best song on the album. 
Uh, and it went number 46 in the charts. It was their their first song uh, to not go top 10 out of the last seven singles. Um, they had achieved a unique honour in America being the only band since Culture Club about seven or eight years earlier to have six consecutive top 10 hits in a row in America. Uh, and there's some nice footage on the plane where uh, the band manager, uh, the tour manager's reading it out and Michael's there with his newspaper and he's going, oh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah, he's having a cigarette on his own plane. And I'm thinking, yeah, he, he's climbed the mountain here. Um, so, uh, so yeah, for those who say In Excess failed in the 90s, well, not quite. I mean, they, <laughs> they just heard the stats of X, so the, the sales, the chart positions of songs in the album, uh, the tour in 91. Um, they were really consolidating the work off, off, off kick. Um, uh, in terms of a fourth single, there's there's no real fourth single sort of listed uh, that they released in America, and I, and I think it was a bit of a missed opportunity, you know, with with the work of Never Tear Us Apart um, still translating today. I don't know why By My Side was never released there, and if so, why it wasn't released as a third single, yeah. maybe after, you know, the Disappear, because they it would have charted, it charted in England, Australia, everywhere. Absolutely. I just, just don't know why the ballad, most mm. bands always put the ballad as the sort of third, fourth, fifth single on an album. Mm. Um, so again, I just don't know why there, because singles keep you in the charts. They keep people front and centre. They, yeah. they, they, when an album starts to go sluggy, sometimes a great song can come out. Like, digressing for a moment, uh, that Def Leppard song, Pour Some Sugar On Me, <laughs> those really incisive lyrics but great hooks, um, that song I think could have been the fourth, fifth, maybe even sixth single off uh, the Hysteria album. Yeah. There's a great documentary where the the, uh, the manager of the band uh, or whatever there, or someone working at the record company, et cetera, said, I've never seen one song sell so many records. You know, the album had sold a million records in America, maybe two, off the first three or four singles. That song came out and that album went to like six more million sales. People go, that's a great song. I'm going to buy the album. Yeah. And sometimes singles, when an album's released since like September 1990, like X, okay, well, you've got, you know, Suicide Blondes released in August, then you've got Disappear maybe in November, and then you've got Bitter Tears in February. But, you know, By My Side, you know, uh, The Stairs, why wasn't that released? Yeah. Um, you know, some of those particular tracks. Um, it was just surprising that maybe that album could have been in the charts a bit longer if, uh, and um, more successful.
All right, so moving to 1991, there was another album released in that year, B, but it was the sneaky little live album, Live Baby Live or Live Baby Live. Uh, so that, again, was probably sort of a, a reflection of 10 years of uh, international sort of touring and recording, and they didn't put a live album out by that point. In fact, a lot of bands, uh, I mean, U2 had just come off the Joshua Tree album, but also Rattle and Hum, which was a live album. They'd also had, uh, I guess, uh, uh, Wide Awake in America, which was an EP live album. They'd had uh, Under Blood Red Sky was a live album. Um, so some of their contemporaries at that time already had three live albums out. So for Inexcess mm. to put one out was sort of well overdue. Uh, and so there's sometimes a handy little filler in between studio projects. It keeps a band's name up there. Um, they recorded and released uh, the song Shining Star as a sort of a, a single for the album, uh, which obviously sort of uh, charted uh, in the UK and Australia, but uh, didn't chart very heavily in America. Um, but uh, that album in America did go on to sell. It's an interesting statistic, but it sold uh, over a million copies and went platinum. But the funny thing about it, as, an, as a sort of a, uh, an album itself, uh, in terms of, say, uh, I think the song Shining Star, um, it didn't chart in America, but... Uh, uh, the actual live album, uh, Live Baby Live or Life Baby Live, depending on what you like to call it, um, that particular album, uh, I think, uh, peaked uh, at something like, from memory, I think it was 72 only. Now, 72 on the charts probably feels like it goes in and out, but it actually went platinum. So it just sort of stayed around and was a slow grow and a, and a sort of a, uh, a slow seller. But over time, it went platinum. Uh, which is over a million units sold. So, uh, again, if we look back to sort of the, the trail, we've got gold for, for uh, Shabu Shabar, 500,000. We've got uh, over a million uh, for, for The Swing, which is platinum. We've got over 2 million for uh, Listen Like Thieves, which is double platinum. We've got, you know, I think officially 6, 7 million, but I think it's closer to 10 now. Uh, for kick and uh, we've got uh, X which I think has sold over two to three million uh, and now we've got another platinum seller in Live Baby Live so you know really a consistent run um, there are bands that are in the Hall of Fame Rock Hall of Fame that have gone nowhere near that level uh, of uh, chart consistency over sort of a, a nine-year period you know let alone a five-year period you know, I mean, let's remember Guns N' Roses and the Rock Hall of Fame. Well, they've really got two albums, you know, uh, Appetite for Destruction and then the Two Use Your Illusions, which is sort of, you know, two albums combined. Um, and, and they got in the Rock Hall of Fame in their first bloody year of eligibility. Yeah, so this period here, 87 to 91, is a really fruitful period for the band, both commercially, critically, you know, award recognition, um, just part of, you know, even that, even in the early 90s, around 90, 91, you know, recognising those top two, three bands in the world um, and in America really consolidated their success.
to the 1992-1997 sort of period here, which um, really starts off in my eyes really excitingly, and I guess as we all know, you know, around 97 ends uh, tragically, um, which we'll lead to in a moment. But uh, 1992, the sort of the band have uh, just a bit of a backdrop. They've gone to the ARI Awards in uh, Australia and they've won Best Band uh, for, I think, uh, you know, global recognition again of Live Baby Live, Wembley, etc. There, uh, but from American point of view, the uh, Spinal Tap guys actually appear at the Ari Awards, and Tim <laughs> and uh, uh, I think Andrew and Kirk, uh, Kirk loves a good award show, uh, were all there uh, and getting their awards from the Spinal Tap guys, and they 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 loved it because they used to play that on tour around America all the time. Um, <laughs> But, you know, they've gone uh, into the recording studio to make Welcome to Wherever You Are with Mark Opitz again. And um, I know that particular album, you know, Mark wanted to have a very musical sound. Mark sort of felt like, you know, X was a good album, but maybe it was sort of retreading the sort of the kick coattails. And I think with Welcome to Wherever You Are, without doing the deep dive today, uh, it really was uh, a sonic and, you know, lyric and and musical sort of accomplishment that um, I think to that time, showed off all their versatility, both, you know, arrangements-wise, um, uh, production-wise, uh, versatility-wise on one album. Yeah. Now, that particular album, you know, was... Let's just go back to the time of 1992. We were having a sort of a musical revolution around the world at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nirvana had released uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit and Nevermind in around about October 91. Uh, I think uh, U2 had just released Uktong Baby in November yeah. 91. Uh, I think that uh, R.E.M.'s Out of Time had just been sort of released early 91, etc. And you had sort of the advent of grunge. So, you know, you had bands like Soundgarden, you had bands like uh, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. When you get a bit of a a sort of a new number in the decade, like 1991, 92 and things like that, when a decade changes, you will look back in history of music how, you know, there is a bit of a, a switch. You know, the late 70s you had, you know, disco but that really sort of was sort of a very short-lived exercise. The late 70s, you had punk that sort of came and went and you went into the new romantic movement. Even the 60s, late 60s, you had that psychedelica stuff that then sort of went into um, uh, singer-songwriter stuff, in, you know, especially in America in the, in the early 70s. So the start of a decade is always a challenge period for a band to create relevance. And uh, in August 92, NXS came out with Welcome to Wherever You Are. And ironically, the UK that had pegged the band and hassled the band and abused the band for years were effusive in the praise of that album and it went number one its first week. Um, in America, though, uh, it only hit number 16. Um, and, you know, I guess if you look back through some of the, the documentaries and the, the liner notes and some of the commentary at the time, now, even though the album went platinum there eventually, it really was a commercial failure in America. Um, they'd come off two, three million with X plus the global sales and the high singles there um, to hit number sort of 16 there, which um, again uh, was seemingly a, a bit of a, 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 a negative outcome, uh, especially for an album that really was at the time, uh, you know, cutting edge with its sounds. It was really a band trying to come back up and be relevant again and, and think it up all again. Um, so to me, it's always my, my greatest disappointment 
uh, about America, if I can actually be harsh on you American fans, not our loyal fans and the band's loyal fans, but the greater part of America for not getting it, yeah. uh, for not understanding it. And, uh, you know, I guess you two had come out nine, ten months earlier with Uktong Baby and um, had sort of, I guess, gone from sort of the more the, the Christian rootsy sort of rockers and things like that to this, you know, um, industrial German product produced um, uh, dancey, you know, uh, fusion type sound, which ironically in excess were probably a lot of those things. And Chris Thomas, who, who uh, uh, I guess produced a lot of, uh, you know, both Thieves and Kick and, and X, was very much like, oh, your mysterious ways off Uktong Baby very much is an in excess sound. So, you know, sometimes in excess maybe were victims of their own continual versatility over their career, the fact that they could play anything at any time. But the reality was Welcome didn't quite hit the levels commercially that it needed to. However, you know, they didn't go without some chart success in the single side. Um, they, you know, excellently made a very smart choice in America, and that is that they actually released uh, Not Enough Time over there as the, uh, as the first single. Uh, and uh, that actually hit 28 on the charts there. Uh, and I guess if you think back to that era there, you had a lot of bands like Boys to Men and, and this sort of uh, R&B thing going and hip-hop sounds. I mean, uh, you know, Not Enough Time and even Taster had sort of a hip-hop sort of type backbeat in it. But it went number 28 uh, in America. Uh, they also went on to release uh, Beautiful Girl that went 46 uh, and got a Grammy nomination for Best Video, uh, deservedly. Uh, taste it only went to number 101 there uh, because that was banned because of the lewd nature of the video apparently B uh, you like I don't the know what you're talking about you like the tasted video don't you no <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I think heaven sent you know uh, you know got some uh, some traction on the alternative charts and the mainstream charts but not necessarily on the billboard charts um, but effectively sort of two top 50 hits uh, a platinum album and unfortunately, because they didn't tour the album, you know, they didn't get the live sort of lift in sales they would have got if they toured it. Um, and again, it was just sort of a sort of a, a, a time where you know the band were probably you know very very um, much you know we're going to have a year off touring. We don't want to tour the album. We deserve a little bit of a break, you know, after going back off their heavy X and the live baby live stuff and, and all the work they did in Europe. They just thought, well, maybe we can have a rest on this album. Uh, at the same time. Uh, Automatic for the People by R.E.M. came out and they didn't tour that album. Um, and again, it always seemed to affect In Excess. If they didn't tour, people used to keep forgetting about them in America. Yeah. Right? So, you know, they didn't quite, they weren't there every sort of 12, 18 months touring live. I don't think there was a, a loyalty amongst some of the American sort Goodbye. of fans that there was, say, in, in Australia, naturally. Um uh, or you know, later to be the UK, although it's probably an unfair comparison because the UK weren't very loyal early. Um, I just think Inexcess always seemed to sell more and do better when they toured. Mm. Uh, and, and disappointingly, what was a great album uh, and did great in the UK and, and serviceable in Australia was really just not understood by America and not embraced. Um, and, yeah, I, I, it's, it's just a bit of a sticking point for me where I love America, what they've done for the band, but I just felt America let the band down on this album when it was one of their finest releases. B, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I have to agree there. I really do, because um, it's an, an excellent album. It's something that I overlooked for a while, though, I must admit. I mean, yeah. like, I think, I, I think perhaps everyone was looking for something fresh and new, and it wasn't so much the music. It was, 
um, the, the actual bands. So like your Nirvana and you know, we had Britpop. So the old bands sort of like got pushed to the side. But you too, they managed to keep in there, didn't they? They well, had a lot of backing. They, they, they sort of just got in before grunge hit. And mm. I think for them what was, was decisive was that they, they'd released the Joshua Tree in 87. Yeah. They'd sort of packaged Art Rattle and Hum as a live type of album at the end of it. So it was really like a, a sort of a, a part of that Joshua Tree era. But they went away for such a long period. They came back literally, it was like four and a half years between studio albums. And the world was wondering what U2 would be doing. And when they came back with something so cataclysmically different, I think they got the respect and then they got the press on their side and then alternative fans liked it and they got a new audience. And yeah. as I said, they got that second album lift. I think, I think that they sort of, it was, it was almost like they sort of stripped off one persona in the 80s and came back with a different persona in the 90s. Yeah. And, and it's still decisive. You go back and listen to a Bono interview in 87, and you look at him now, he's a different guy. Now, you know, is he different because he's more himself and more comfortable? Maybe. But but there was just this seismic sort of shift there. Now, within excess, in excess probably were more seen in the 80s as that literally like the name, band in excess, excessive, big, boisterous, loud, uh, atmospheric, you know, anthemic or whatever there. Welcome to Wherever You Are is a little bit more of a thoughtful album. It's a little more yeah, measured. Yeah. It's a little bit more musical. It's a little bit more artistic um, and, and, and a band really digging deep into their, I don't know, their aspirational, um, I guess, motivations and coming back with a piece of art. Yeah. And um, sometimes a piece of art is hard to market. You know, you need record company support. And I don't think the record company over there, you know, really ever were, were, were good enough for the band. I think Chris had to be over there at the time. And maybe Chris wasn't over in America as much in 92 as he was in 87. Yeah. But I think that that sort of slide and that descent came uh, when that occurred. And, and then the band sort of did something which, you know, I guess musically wise, I'm glad they did it, but probably marketing wise wasn't very smart. And that is they went in and recorded another album so quickly after and released it so quickly after that Welcome never got time to breathe or never got time to be relaunched, that they had another album coming out. And uh, Prince was always at odds with his record label Warners for always releasing too much music too quickly. Um, often the, the, the theory was record the album, release the album, release four or five singles, tour it for a year and a half, let it breathe, let it develop, go back in the studio, record an album. By the time that it comes out again, it's two and a half years. Whereas Prince had so much material, he could have released the album every Thursday. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so in excess, you know, there was, there was a discussion point in one article I remember saying, oh, they just had put out too much product in the 90s. But they had Kick in 90, which was a, you know, a three-year gap after Kick. Uh, so they had, sorry, they had Kick, X, sorry, 99, which was a three-year gap after um, Kick. They had the live album the end of 91, Welcome the end of 92, and they had Full Moon Dirty Hearts the end of 93. Now, you know, you could say they put out too much product and, and the marketers didn't like it, but, you know, the Beatles had Rubber Soul in 65, you know, they had Revolver in 66, they had, you know, uh, Sgt Pepper 67, the White Album 68, uh, Abbey Road 69, you know, it didn't hurt them too much. So if you've got the songs and it's coming out at a rate of quality, I don't regret what they did Yeah. because... I think, you know, without going to full moon at the moment just yet, I mean, that was a great album in itself. But I think where, you know, the marketers and the record company support and touring, et cetera, there, and then some slight sort of changes and, you know, your 20-somethings or uni college students who are on kick are now out in corporate America not going to gigs anymore, you know? 
they're growing up and there's another generation coming through and it's really hard to tap into future generations and find two or three in a row. Like it really is difficult. Um, but it's just, dis- you know, disappointing for me that welcome wasn't quite given the, that extra sort of lift that they needed. And I think if they'd had of, we'd still see them today and they'd still be seen much differently and they'd be in the rock and roll hall of fame anyway. Yes. If they did get that recognition in America for that. Welcome. I believe you're right. Definitely <laughs> right there. So a measured rant today within the topic, B. <laughs> yeah, I hear, I hear you. I hear And I, I support you on that as well, definitely. Well, I remember at the time, because I was sort of 21 and uh, so much looking forward to the albums, and I was in the sweet spot of really understanding, and I was reading every article and reading every chart and buying every publication and really writing it to see if this album would give them that lift. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's an album that, again, you know, when we talk about the UK... Uh, we'll probably flip it on its head and talk about how positive an element is in the UK. But in America, it's the defining sort of year where uh, some of the passing fans or the, you know, the... Lost. I, yeah, the, you know, the Listen Like Thieves, Kick It X fans just drifted into yeah. um, not giving a shit as much, you know? Mm. Um, and that's just the way it was. Going into, you know, Full Moon Dirty Hearts, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but look, it obviously got released in America. Uh, unfortunately, it, uh, I think, only hit number, like, 53 on the charts. Um, again, you know, probably the same issues. You know, the record companies were changing at that particular point. You know, in excess, as we've said previously, it started off with, I think, Atco, and then they've gone into sort of Atlantic and, and, and different sort of record company sort of situations. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was great, you know, at certain times, but... I just think that their record company was changing at that particular point. They ended up switching to Epic, um, but they were really let down by their US label at that point. So much so, I think the album's deleted now. You can't even buy it in America, which is a bit of a shame. Um, so uh, I think from singles-wise off the album, etc. there, um, you know, the, the, the gift, you know, was released, but, you know, only hit sort of alternate sort of chart success. Uh, same with Time. Uh, Please You Got That didn't chart, even though it had Ray Charles on it, which was great. Um, yeah, they were just going down the slippery slope into oblivion in America. And um, again, they didn't tour as much there. Um, they did the Letterman show with Ray Charles and a few things. But yeah, it was just a, that sort of continuation there. And look, not long after, you know, um, Full Moon Dirty Hearts, they really sort of just went their separate ways for the better part of four years outside the, the Greatest Hits album, 94. They did a bit of stuff in the UK, a little bit of stuff in America promoting it. But um, from 90 sort of four... Uh, to 97, they sort of just went their separate ways. And, um, look, thankfully, the the Greatest Hits album, um, uh, and you might not know this, B, but the Greatest Hits album that came out in 94, there was three versions. There was an Australian version, a US version, and a UK version. Uh, the American version had a 16-track uh, edition and it had two new songs on it, The Strangest Party and Deliver Me. Uh, so you can't get Deliver Me on any of the other versions on the American one. Uh, it only went to 112 in America, but it still went platinum. <laughs> so it just meant that over the years between maybe 94 and, and, and the early 2000s, people just gradually bought it and it hit over a million sales. Um, I think Full Moon prior to that only hit 155,000 official sales. Um, 
But, uh, but yeah, though, that 93 to 97 period, you know, I guess was that sort of, again, that continuation of just a little bit of a slide. Um, they took a lot of time off. Um, they got back to do Elegantly Wasted um, and uh, they uh, were able to sort of record that up in Canada. Uh, all the songs were really Andrew and, and, and uh, Michael driven. Um, and, and look, they got a little bit of traction with uh, the, the title track. Um, I know it got uh, into the late 30s in the charts, more than this on the mainstream charts, but uh, they did sell out some good tours. There was a little bit of a comeback feel of things. There's some, some really good interviews. If you do dive deep out there and look, there's a great interview with Michael on the John Stewart show. Uh, there's a good one with a band play on Rosie O'Donnell, Rosie O'Donnell's show, and then they all get interviewed. And um, look, there were a lot of fans of what went to that sort of elegantly wasted tour as such. But um, um, we all know sort of what happened, you know, in the later reaches of '97 with Michael. Um, and I guess you know that American period of '90 sort of two to '97 was a sort of a gradual descent into where you know I guess unfortunately Michael passed, and uh, the band really I guess from an American point of view. We're an afterthought. I'm such a I am not alone. I am such a please give me some. We will talk about this later in our narrative series, but the band came back uh, in America, that is. And one of the biggest ways that they did come back was putting on the Rockstar NXS show, which was, um, you know, production-wise and, and, and quality-wise, just an excellent show to, to watch. Um, I know, you know, some might say it's bad taste to replace your lead singer and to do it via a reality show, but, you know, let's look at the, the, the circumstances. You've got a, a bunch of guys in their late 40s, early 50s, uh, or probably late 40s at that stage, they wanted to play music. They'd been away from music for seven years. You know, I think ACDC, when, uh, you know, Bon Scott died, were away from music for seven days and didn't record for seven weeks. So, you know, I think from a tasteful point of view, NXS did sort of do proper homage, reconsideration, you know, and then when they did decide to come back in 2004, they thought about it. But just because Michael passed doesn't mean they don't deserve to have a career or don't deserve to play music or be together because it wasn't their choices to see what happened to Michael. Exactly. And I feel strong about that. Um, whether you like the JD years, whether you like the Switch album, whether you like whatever, I still think that they did approach it and, and record and 
and come back with good intentions to want to basically pursue a further career. Uh, and uh, the Rockstar in Excess show uh, was a great way of marketing in terms of propelling yourself back into 2005, into the 2000s, because reality shows were the big thing. Um, you know, uh, to pick a singer on a show and to go about it and whatever there could it be deemed to be, just, uh, to be tacky to some point. I, I understand that. Um, would have I preferred them to go a different route? Probably. Um, but that show was its number one show in America in its time slot. Uh, it helped the Switch album get literally back into, uh, in excess into the charts. Uh, the album hit number 17, which uh, was great. Uh, it, it, it sold just short of gold status at the time. Uh, Pretty Vegas, the lead single off the album, B, hit 37. But uh, you might not know this, at that time in 2005 when it hit that number, downloads were only new as a forum for, uh, uh, I guess, measuring success. So they used to measure singles still by the old go to the store and buy the CD single. However, that single went gold, that is Pretty Vegas, which really means it was a top five single. They don't, you don't buy songs from the shop anymore, do you? <laughs> So, so in reality, if you apply the metrics at the time as a gold single, Pretty Vegas was a top five, top ten single, uh, albeit at the official charts at the time recognised it at number thirty-seven um, by virtue of the of the metrics they used at the time. Uh, it also went gold in Canada and its nearby neighbours. Uh, they had obviously other singles in Afterglow, Perfect Strangers, uh, etc. Off the album, I think Devil's Party uh, didn't do a lot in America in that particular time. Um, but uh, from a chart sort of point of view, uh, they were able to sort of get things cranking sort of from there. Uh, a little side note, B, an album that you love is the original Sin re-record album, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Now, again, uh, what people don't always know is that there were two hits off that album in America on the dance chart. So the Rob Thomas one that came out uh, on that album was released as a single in America uh, and uh, from the dance charts in America on Billboard, it went number one. And then the second one they released, which was the tricky version of Mediate, was released as a single in America and went number five on the dance charts. So even though, you know, the album itself was probably, you know, didn't sort of, you know, smash records and things like that in America, they were able to get two top five hits in the dance charts, which I know the band were very proud of at the time. Uh, and I think, you know, that tricky version of media, I just love that version. You know, I think it really sort of is real cutting edge. And Michael would have loved the fact that Tricky was on a in excess album because Michael's such into that um, Bristol sound. things up about our US in America, you know, I don't want the sort of the last part to sort of sour what I think about America or even the band. I think the band love America, are appreciative to America. It's probably bought most of their properties from what they achieved in America. You know, I just was always just a little bit sad that sort of the welcome onwards period wasn't as prolific. 
Um, but you know what? I look back as an overall package now of, of achievement there. And, you know, I know myself personally, I thank America for, for embracing them and giving them the life that they deserve and providing the forum and even the, still the, the, the platforms these days through Spotify, through radio, through all the different streaming services that uh, people still get a chance to enjoy them. The fact that we exist as a podcast, B, is probably due to America and some of the big companies there that have created the social media platforms for us to get heard. So if InXS can still have an audience worldwide through our platform, through their music, through the streaming services, we're very grateful. However, I do have a few little sliding doors moments, B. Do you remember the movie Sliding Doors? I do. Right. Well, I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, in excess of being the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if a couple of these things may have gone their way. Okay. So I'm going to read a couple out to them. What if the band actually lived in America rather than in the UK during the 90s? So Andrew and Michael lived in the UK. But what if Michael, as a superstar, had have lived in America and was on Californian TV and New York TV and being a, it's almost like sort of a, a go-to guy in the media and being a bit more of a, uh, a media personality than the shy guy that he was off stage. I wonder what would have happened if he would have been, uh, you know, that, that would have helped the Hall of Fame chances. What if Welcome to Wherever You Are had the critical acclaim but also the commercial acclaim? Well, I think I've treaded that. What if they toured the album there would have made a difference? What if Billy Ocean didn't actually hit number one instead of Devil Inside? Would two number ones made a difference to Grammys and equal a difference to the narrative? What if they released seven singles off Kick? You know, everyone hears Mystify and Kick and Guns in the Sky. Well, they're virtually singles. What if they released all seven of them? What if they released five singles off X? What if they released The Stairs first as a single, not Suicide Blonde? The Stairs is a, is a better song musically and lyrically and whatever there and more mature. Would it have been seen as a step up from Kick? What if, okay... Andrew did more media like he does now over there. We can't get Andrew away from a camera now. We love Andrew. But what if Andrew, that superstar, the Brian Wilson of NXS, the little quiet guy up on the keyboard, what if he was that little superstar up there that could have just given the band a second profile over there, okay? What if NXS played the media game that you too did with Bono and cause marketing and attached themselves to every major cause and were more, you know, I guess out there like playing the media game? Would have that helped them? You know, what if they wrecked more hotel rooms and stuffed up more things like Guns N' Roses did and were more controversial? Would have these things made a difference? Well, you know, it's funny. Sometimes people reward information. What if he hadn't have banged his head on the on the concrete? Yeah. What What if he hadn't have had the accident? Yeah. You know. And and, and I think that yeah. had a, a big play to a lot of him not touring so, so yeah. much and not being in the media. But then, like you say, then Andrew or Tim could have stood up a bit more for the band, maybe. Yeah. You know. But but yeah. And Tim, you know, could have been that other superstar over there. Like Tim is such mm. a good media guy, likable guy. Yeah. Um, and was his band in a way, you know, what if he just had, a, you know, lived in America and, 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 and done things over there now, you know, I'm not here to say should have, or could have, or would have, but you know, had family. So what if, but you know, there's some what ifs there, but here's the thing. We should all be proud of them. America should be proud of them. And we will see them one day in the rock and roll hall of fame. And maybe just one day, just one day, mm -hmm. welcome to wherever you are. We'll get the kudos it deserves and get a lift. Yes. And, and give a different perception and slant on the band than the one that exists. 
But America, we salute you. We are more grateful than negative. And we ask for your continual support over there to get the band in the Hall of Fame because it is an American institution. There are worthy bands in Australia and the UK that you've never heard of that won't ever get looked at that surpass some of your homegrown bands, okay? Midnight Oil, Crowded House, okay? You know, uh, uh, The Jam. You know, some of these bands, Duran Duran aren't even in. You know what I mean? There's some bands around the world that aren't even getting recognised. No. We want America to be more global and be mm-hmm. more looking outside your back garden because there are many bands like NXS that should be in. Yeah. So, here, here. America, thank you. But you've got a little bit of work to do. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Mr. Hayden, again. So much knowledge you have and uh, really, uh, really enjoyed this uh, show. I, I felt like I was part of the listenership there. Thank you. No problems. And look, just one little thing I forgot to mention earlier that I wanted to do is that, that even though they didn't record a lot of stuff over there, um, they released a lot of videos over there and there's lots of great footage there. And just one, if you're a, a fan that don't know everything about them, go download or Google on YouTube, whatever, uh, the Everything film clip uh, with uh, the band uh, off um, Elegantly Wasted. It's such a great film clip with a band coming to sort of an amphitheatre and then there's the crowd around and they sing together. It's such a great film clip made in America and I really love it. And, uh, you know, it's not a a well-known song or a well-known clip. Um, You know, we know that they, you know, Devil Inside, which is more known there in sort of, I think, Huntington Beach and things. But the Everything clip, guys, do us a little favour. Put that one on. It's such a great song, a great clip, and it is a, a great little sort of video that Americans should be proud of too. Hey, it's Matt Dean from Wangaroda, Australia, and you're listening to In Access, Access All Areas. We've made it to 30 uh, again in our lives, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Episode 30, uh, and we're still figuring ourselves out in this, but we hope people are enjoying it and we love doing it. And I guess thank you for being part of 30 awesome experiences with me so far doing this, B. And thank you too, Mr. Murdoch. Now, B, we have competitions uh, or competition that that is out where a person can win vegan. Yes. Alternative design kick album cover, which is a rare thing in itself. Very. It's, I think five copies issued around the world. Uh, mm-hmm. Two to our uh, patrons uh, and engages, and uh, I guess we're going to get one on one each, aren't we? I yes, think. we are. are we, we're getting one each of those. Yeah, and they're on their way. I know they've been posted. Can't wait. All right, um, but look very simply, B. Uh, there's two winners that can be part of this. Okay, do you want to just share? Uh, part one of the competition, uh, who can win? Okay. We'd like you to help us out um, by getting us more listeners because the more listeners we have, the more we've got a chance of getting ourselves out there to other listeners and then we can get in excess into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So we need your help. And 
we would like to give one of these posters as a competition to the person who can get us the most listeners. Now, we need you to let us know how many you have got and email that to inexcess aaa gmail.com to Lisa or to competition. And um, so if you can get the most patrons or the most listeners, let us know via email. That would be awesome. Now, we're not going to tell you the leaderboard at the moment for fear of uh, scaring oh. you or, okay. or fear of overly inspiring you. <laughs> but what we can tell you is we are getting lots of emails through. We are yeah. getting lots of responses from people out there who uh, are getting uh, listeners on board. And I guess very simply, if you, uh, through our, I think our QR code, can most of our listeners share that with their yeah. contacts? Is that a good That's way? That's what most people are doing is um, using the QR code that is on the <laughs> Facebook and then they're getting, they're taking a photo of that, put it onto their phone and then they're sharing that out as, as well, which is great. But yeah, yeah if you can uh, just let, the, I know it's a little bit, of a pain just to email us, but we've got to judge how many people are coming through, yeah. haven't we? It's yeah. Bit, it's metric based and stuff like that. So, Absolutely. Uh, and here's the thing. If we can get more people re-inspired by NXS and re-inspired by what they've done and created, it means more songs on the radio. It means more chances of getting into Hall of Fame. It means more people out there appreciating what I think we all appreciate, uh, hence by doing this podcast. Um, I think the second one is we, we definitely need more patrons. And I know it's a little bit painful and always you know, sometimes a little bit embarrassing, sometimes appealing for it. But the reality is, uh, you know, the monies that come in through this podcast really allow us to put prizes out, to be able to invest in equipment. And speaking of equipment, I think my uh, speaker has uh, blown before this podcast, B, so if I sound a bit scratchy, oh, no. uh, it's, uh, yeah, maybe I've just done too much talking in six months. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, so, um, but yeah, more patrons that are referred to us and coming into the mix, you know, just means more chances for us to get access to the competitions you're in, uh, get yes. to meet you, get you part of the Zoom calls, get access to the podcast quicker. Yeah, yeah. Um, fan chats with people like Nick Egan um, you know we want to really create a sort of a movement you know that takes this particular uh, opportunity further and um, it probably doesn't link into something else B on a side note is that you've had some interest from some radio stations in uh, your region haven't you? I have, yes. Yeah. I, I, have I not mentioned this already? Really? I thought have. I had. No, like, uh, but look it's not so much about us but you know we there may be an opportunity where our podcast is, is going to be not so much streamed but played uh, out on yeah the yeah i've been very fortunate because um like we we we've, we we need sponsorship really we need to get some good sponsors and i was speaking to my manager uh, my my uh, radio uh, manager and she says i just love you guys you're so good she says i would love to re-air your uh, podcasts so she's been really supportive so um they're going to get really Ed, we're going to go for a couple of weeks um, on um, CHYFM um, 104.5, which is so really you're nice. Me that if Carmen does another road trip up to Grafton, and she flicks <laughs> on the radio, radio, she may hear the dulcet tones of, uh, of B yes. and Maiden coming out across the radio, huh? Yeah, and the good thing as well is, I mean, we've got, we've got our copyright done, but we can only... Sp- um, use a small clip of music on yep. the radio. Be able to have um, the full music through yeah. for um, in excess, which is cool. Yeah. 
I would also like to, to, can I give a shout out some um, some fan engagers actually? I've gone through all the different platforms this time around and I've picked a couple of people from each one. So I'd like to give a big shout to Brett, Brett Carroll. He's on Facebook and uh, hello. Um, Stuart. I don't know Stuart's surname, but he's messaged me on Instagram. I'd like to give him a big shout. And then recently today, well, this week, I've gone on to LinkedIn. I've gone all professional, <laughs> professional and business-like. And a really nice guy called Gary who says that he was very big friends with Michael, Gary yeah. Lilly. And um, he might like to come on to the show one day and give us another level yeah. of um, – friendship with michael and then on twitter there's quite a few of you there's um that are always um engaging with me and uh farah who is on my hutch nation page as well joanna gareth and daryl and then we've got a really nice new one is titam Titam, um, and she's like, on. Like <laughs> Actually, I like to say a really. She's going to get so embarrassed. My friend from South Africa, um, yeah. Kaz, and uh, she can't say Tim Tam. She goes Tim Tom. Hey, in Australia, we pronounce <laughs> we we pronounce it South Africa. South Africa. Tim Tom. <laughs> Would you like a Tim Tom? <laughs> we love our South African listeners. Okay? We love you. We love you. We love you. All right. Now, just to wrap things up a little bit, B, uh, I can put out there to a lot of the listeners who are very, very excited, and we've talked about this for a while. Uh, next week, we are going to be doing the Max Q. <gasps> so we're very excited about that. And All right. part of the show next week, uh, we might even do a little bit of cheating, but we're actually going to play the whole album. Yes. So we know some people don't always have access to it and whatever there, but we're actually going to play the whole album. And uh, look, if, if you've heard it before, you can always flip through, but if you haven't, you know, we want everyone around the world to hear it. Michael wants everyone to hear it. Yes. Um, and we're going to talk about the tracks and the history behind it. And uh, maybe the following week, we, if we are lucky enough, we might be able to secure people who had a little bit more of an intimate knowledge about the album recording, i.e. Ollie Olsen and others will work on trying to secure him. But uh, yeah, we think that that album deserves its uh, rightful uh, you know, place in the modern sort of discussion point of great music. So yeah, Max Q next Awesome. Week. Can't wait. Yeah. yeah. It'd be really good if Ollie comes out and uh, has a chat with us. Very good. 100%. Um, but we get to that time of the week where we either do a, a cover song or a tribute. And I think being the theme this week of In Excess in the USA, uh, In Excess in 1988 were the biggest band in the world. You know, U2 was probably 87, In Excess was 88. You know, you probably had, I think, Dire Straits was 86. I think, you know, we had, you know, all bands have their year or two where they're right front and centre. But, you know, In Excess in 1988 were really at the precipice uh, at the apex of the mountain. And I think uh, a film, uh, well, a song that's performed live and still gives me tingles and pride uh, and, uh, you know, shivers up my spine when I see it uh, is their live uh, version of New Sensation at the end of the 1988 MTV Awards where Arsenio Hall throws to them and they've just scooped the pool that night and they're playing New Sensation live. Michael's got the rose pedal in his hair, tied back, okay. crowd are getting into it, jumping up and down. You see a swagger and a conference are on cloud nine. 
you can Google it, you can look at it, you can see the interviews backstage afterwards, but I can't think of a better sort of night in my life within excess where I felt like, wow, these guys have conquered the world yeah. and uh, we're going to go out with New Sensation live MTV Music Awards. It's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from B. Bye, everyone. Oh, stop it. These guys, they're considered by most in the world, and I guess you're a part of that, the best live band on the planet. Yes, you know you are. You know you are. How about it? They've been together for 10 years, the same group. Can I hear it? We're in.